The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The reality is much more complicated, right? At the end of the day, today's internet, the, the less governed part of it brings with it some innovation and practicality and adaptation, but also the craziness of, uh, you know, foreign manipulation of, uh, you know, electoral processes and so on. It also highlights the extent to which even a relatively open internet gets readapted and reinterpreted at the national level by authoritarian regimes. So I think all that is to say hard questions about what governance framework or approach might be doable in the AI context that will still allow for plenty of innovation and flexibility, but say like, you know what, there are some risks here. It's useful to know a little bit about who's doing what at the frontier so that if something goes badly wrong, we kind of know who's accountable for it. I'm Alan Rosenstein, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota and Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for October 12th, 2023. Artificial intelligence has massive upside potential. It could revolutionize education, science, and art, and lead to a more prosperous and equitable world. But it also carries equally massive downside risk, not just for individuals, but for society and human civilization itself. How do we avail ourselves of AI's benefits while minimizing its costs? That's a question that my two guests today have thought a lot about. Tino Cuellar is a former Stanford law professor and California Supreme Court justice. He's currently the president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Hadrian Puget is an associate fellow in the Technology and International Affairs Program at Carnegie. I spoke with Tino and Hadrian about what lessons history can and can't teach us when it comes to regulating AI and what an international regulatory framework for this technology might look like. It's a Lawfare podcast, October 12th. Tino Cuellar and Hadrian Puget on AI safety. I'd like to start with some level setting. And in particular, what do you all mean when you talk about AI safety? And in particular, how do you conceptualize that as differing from other concerns that people often bring up about AI, whether relating to privacy or discrimination or job loss? Um, these are obviously, of course, important issues. But my understanding is that you're trying to target a conceptually and analytically separate issue in your work? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having those of us from the Carnegie Endowment who are thinking about this here. We're very happy to work with you on the topic and to think it through. I'll start, and Hadrian, I'm sure, has some thoughts too. So artificial intelligence, the technology that basically lets us simulate the human quality of thought and of intelligence, and that allows us to get a machine to do what we might ordinarily have thought of a human as being needed to do, is a a general purpose technology by definition. It's a set of machine learning models and neural networks and techniques for building models that you can then put in a system to do stuff, to chat, to uh, 
make uh, simulated decisions to, you know, optimize on logistics to do any number of other things to, to like uh, separate the signal from the noise and in audio and so on. And that quality that allows us to simulate human intelligence and maybe even exceed it in certain specialized contexts right now is a potential benefit for humanity, but it also comes with some risks. You know, what if it's built into a weapon? What if it uh, ends up being the system you use to screen applicants and hire people? What if it ultimately is in charge of critical infrastructure? What if it makes lots and lots of knowledge that previously was difficult to come by available to lots of people, including folks who want to do bad things in the cyber realm or in the physical world? So AI safety is about getting the most positive benefit from AI while reducing all those risks and a bunch of other risks we can talk about. Yeah, I'll jump in as well. Thank you so much, Alan, for having us. Um, I'd say that part of the conversation about AI safety sometimes get a little gets a little more focused and is really about the sort of unique capabilities that AI might have in the future, especially the dangerous capabilities AI might have in the future. So a lot of worries either about these kinds of capabilities of building bioweapons, maybe conducting cyber attacks, getting in the wrong hands, or maybe potentially even further in the future, um, losing control of an AI system that has these capabilities and understanding how to deal with that. Um, so there's there's a whole spectrum of, of risks here, really, um, but that's sometimes something people focus on when they talk about AI safety. One tricky feature, at least as I've observed it, about the AI safety discourse is that opinions, not just about how to deal with it, but on its very existence, get very polarized, right? So like everyone accepts in principle that there are potential, let's say, privacy concerns about AI. But there are people who are AI safety experts and who dismiss the other side as a bunch of overwrought doomers who spend way too much time worrying about AI becoming the great paperclip maximizer. And in particular, it's interesting that some of these skeptics or many of these skeptics are not themselves proponents of AI, which is to say, you would imagine that, you know, the people most invested in the success of AI might be these skeptics. But in fact, it's often AI critics themselves who poo-poo and push back in quite strong terms against the doomers on the theory that every moment we spend worrying about paperclip maximization and artificial general intelligence taking over and Skynet waking up, you know, however you want to you phrase it, is a moment we're not spending worrying about the specific short-term threats to discrimination and job loss and, and so forth. And so I'm wondering if if you think there's anything to that, or rather, maybe we just can chew gum and walk at the same time. And sort of more generally, sort of how, how do you bridge that divide between the skeptics and the doomers? We can watch, chew gum, touch our noses, you know, twirl around all at the same time. I guess what's interesting to me about all this is you'll notice that when you first ask the question, what is AI safety? I didn't say anything about paperclips. I talked about critical infrastructure. And I think what's important to first do is ground the conversation on the reality that you can have, and this is maybe the walk and chew gum point you're making, we can have two or three conversations going on at the same time and they're not mutually exclusive. They ideally might be complementary. One is about, you know, imagine the thought experiment that like any AI model that we have right now is about as good as it's going to get. And there will be no GPT-5. There's not going to be a Claude 3. You know, Google will stop at Bard and Bison and never mind Gemini. Like, And that just all technological development will stop. And anything we can do on AI is really just deploying the reinforcement learning models and the generative AI models we have right now. And nothing will really improve on them. There will still be safety questions, to my mind, about 
applications that we build into medical devices about critical infrastructure control systems and so on. But then the other conversation is about how incredibly unlikely it is that we're going to see that stoppage in progress. And you had folks calling for kind of a pause in AI development not long ago, and that, of course, did not happen. And I don't think there's any good technical reason to think that AI, the progress of functionality is really going to slow down as we're throwing tons of money and compute at this. So then the conversation becomes not about what these models can do or the next generation or maybe the next generation after that. But then it becomes about three years to 20 to 30 years out. And once you broaden the aperture that way, and Hadrian will probably have some thoughts on this too, then the the analog is not necessarily just nuclear. It's fossil fuels. It's climate where like you get humanity to effectively have opportunities for real progress by scaling up energy use to staggering degrees but you run the risk that civilization backs itself into a corner because we have billions upon billions of decisions being made about a technology that seems in any individual instance relatively safe. And so I can't imagine why we wouldn't want to be having that other AI safety conversation at the same time that we have the more near-term one as well. I'm, I'm going to ask a follow-up, and then I'd love to hear from actually both both Tino and, 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 and Adrian. So I, I promise that I, I will, will not spend a lot of this conversation talking about paperclip maximizers because I, I do agree. I think the sort of call medium range safety risks that I take it you are most engaged with, I think are sort of more interesting. But I, I am curious just because it is so prevalent in the discourse. Do you take a position on the existence of the world historical existential AI risk? Or, and and if so, do you think there's anything sort of useful that can be done? Um, Hadrian and I met and why this conversation happened because we were at an AI safety and existential risk conference. And I distinctly remember uh, sitting through a two-hour discussion of all the ways that AI could end the world and thinking, on the one hand, I don't have arguments against this, but I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do about this. Um, so I, I can sort of see why just on those grounds, one might not think that this is the most profitable way to spend our time when thinking about AI safety and risk? It's a good question. And my best approach to answering it is to not give you an AI specific answer, but to give you a more broad answer about the capability of humanity to both do great benefit to itself, but also great harm to itself and to the planet. I was a kid when the Bhopal chemical leak happened in India and lots and lots and lots and lots of people died. And I remember at that moment, it struck me that all these things that were around me that I was seeing from cars to windows to houses to machines that were, to, you know, cassette tapes, which you don't really use anymore, they could all reflect and affect the capability of human beings to build technological infrastructures that just like badly, badly function. And uh, I just don't find it so persuasive when somebody says, well, look, you know, it's kind of the cost of doing business and people die. Like there are chemical leaks and it's just like bad, but that doesn't mean, you know, we shouldn't think about it. So then if I ask myself, if we are on the verge of creating quite capable systems that can very convincingly simulate intelligence, never mind the like stochastic parrot discussion and all that, but it, you know, you take an informed lay person, they interact with, you know, a GPT-4 level model, and they can easily be persuaded that they're talking to something that is intelligent. And the clunkiness of it really is coming more from the guardrails and from any limitation inherently in the, you know, generative pre-trained transformer technology in that kind of situation, I think it's kind of silly not to think about what the downsides are and what the risks are as we go from a world 
where these things are a bit of a curiosity and, you know, eight, 900 million people are kind of playing with them, trying to build cover letters with them to a world where billions of these systems are interacting with each other, making decisions on our behalf, forming coalitions with each other and ending up perhaps shaping the world in ways that we haven't fully thought through. Yeah, I think Tino hit the nail on the head. Um, that makes a ton of sense. My personal take is that there's enough there to be worried about and that it's something worth paying attention to. And maybe to get at both of your questions, one of the key differences I see between the two sides of this debate often are is a rather empirical question just about where are we today and how quickly will we get to very intelligent systems? I think often if you ask people, if you truly believed that in two or three years we had systems that were human intelligence or beyond, would you be worried? The answer is often yes, but there's this very sort of empirical question about, well, is that the case? Is that all just open AI and thropic hype trying to sell their products? You know, they have to sell the future or is it a genuine prediction about how the future might play out? Um, and I think depending on where you fall on this question, colors a lot of how worried you are and where you think the focus should be. So now that we've done some table setting, let's start talking about how one might think about managing and thinking through AI safety. And a point that both of you have made in sort of earlier writing and, and in conversations that I've had with you is that although LLMs might be new, the large language models, the, the, the BARDs, the, the chat GPTs, although they might be new, we've dealt with large civilizational level, let's call them, opportunities and threats in the past. Right, whether we're talking about nuclear weapons and nuclear power or climate change or the Green Revolution. And so presumably we can hopefully use our experience with those prior large-scale problems and also opportunities to inform how we think about regulating AI. And so I'm curious, as you see, what are the similarities and differences between, say, generative AI or just general sort of uh, AI and these previous challenges? And what sort of lessons do you at least take from how we've dealt with and um, in some cases failed to deal well with? I think there are some interesting parallels, but I would say that one of the interesting distinctions I often see with AI is that the profile of risks and benefits is a lot richer than it might be for something comparable like nuclear, um, where there are millions of very, very real and tangible benefits from powerful AI that can be used, and as well, all kinds of economic incentives to build these things, um, which I think is pretty clearly displayed by the fact that the top actors in the space are private actors in a way that maybe you didn't get with nuclear, and which seems to me like a very important point to pay attention to, uh, because a lot of the nuclear non-proliferation regime was originally built on the idea that we could stop most of nuclear proliferation by just offering this olive branch of, we'll help you with any sort of building up your nuclear energy capacity, which seemed to be the sort of most useful civilian use of nuclear. Uh, and so I think it requires broadening the scope and thinking a bit beyond that. And I know Tino's made great parallels to, to more global and complex issues like climate and the use of fossil fuels. Uh, and I'd love, to, I'd love to hear his take on this. Yeah, just to expand on that a little bit, let me, we can talk about the climate analogy, but let me just start with the internet, which actually is interesting here because the internet in many ways enabled the current boom in AI because it turned our lives into data that can now be harvested, sliced, diced, um, and effectively liquefied and used to fill in the bottles that these models represent in some sense. And I would say, 
With the internet, there are a number of lessons. The first lesson is that you can very, very quickly go from a world of 500 servers to a world of like billions of people intersecting with this technology. It took a while. It, it didn't happen literally from one year to the next, but didn't take too long. And as that scaling up of human activity on the internet happened, it was a paradigm shift that that did not leave really almost any part of our lives untouched from how we choose the food that we eat to where we live, to how we sort ourselves into groups that like curate particular kinds of information and relationships to how dating now works. Like all of that stuff happened because the department of defense wanted to build a resilient network that could help the U S survive an attack. Right? So I think we have to think cultural. We can't just think economic and we can't just think political. And we certainly can't just think policy or business. Similar fashion, what was really, for some of us, the first kind of artificial intelligence, if, if by that we mean sort of like some system for grouping human knowledge and activity and channeling it into a, a structure or an entity that can act almost by itself in a sense, I would say it was the corporation. It was the corporate form. And hundreds of years ago, the idea that human beings could begin to develop these sort of mechanisms for having legal personhood that could act in the market, that could make decisions on their own, that could be criminally liable for something actually, has totally upended our world. Like everything from like what lawfare is as an organization or the Carnegie Endowment is, to how we fund our work has been shaped by that move, right? And it's taken maybe hundreds of years. I don't think it'll take that long with AI. But all that makes me feel like there, there are these safety questions that arise, but they're in the context more of like, how does humanity begin to co-evolve with a technology that can now sort of act in the world in a manner that simulates what has always been for us humans, like the thing that makes us different from animals. And, you know, query just how different it makes us from the rest of the animal kingdom. I think it does, but, but it, it's probably a question of degree. And uh, I don't think we fully thought through like, where does that go entirely? And just trying to stay ahead of that is tough. I think it requires a lot of collaboration and debate, disagreement, lots of organizations working on this together. So the example of the internet that you brought up is very interesting because one, one can take something very different lessons from whether we're going to be able to regulate AI based on how we have and have not regulated the internet. Um, so just to give an example from something that I think about a lot, um, intermediary liability and Section 230, you know, we're in a world today where because Congress in, in a little bit by accident passed this very obscure provision in 1996, you know, 25 years later or 30 years later, we have this um, pretty ungoverned internet that some people think is fabulous and thank God we didn't restrict it and some people think is terrible uh, and that we are not making much progress in trying to frankly regulate. And so I'm sort of curious, I mean, if 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 the internet is the example you you look to, do you, do you worry that AI, which is probably going to be far more technologically consequential than the internet was, may prove similarly ungovernable? Or am I being too much of a pessimist? No, I think actually I look to the internet not as a model for how to get things done in governance, but more as an example that we can learn from. And one way I think your point is poignant is that, you know, we all to some extent are experiencing a world that was shaped by a discussion that occurred in the U.S. around liability, which kind of went something like this. Look, the internet can bring many benefits to people. This is a new economic form. 
And the one thing that will actually kill it is like having a set of uncontrolled liability related moves that then create like a chilling effect where nobody really does anything on the internet relative to what they could. And section 230 was enacted. Now the history of section 230 is complicated. I wrote a concurring opinion somewhere about this, but I would say if the companies that are at the forefront of AI came to Congress tomorrow and said, you know what, in order to really deliver value for the American public, what we need is to be completely insulated from liability. I don't think that would get anywhere right now. And I think there are many reasons why, but one reason is that the legacy of of Section 230 is kind of messy and complicated. It's delivered some benefits, but it's certainly not a slam dunk that that was like the obvious way to go or that it applies perfectly in this context. Yeah, I think in the US, the challenge that we face off against very often is this sort of status quo bias, where in the absence of a Congress that's able to actually push something through, you end up stuck with what you currently have. This is maybe an issue for Section 230, which there have been all kinds of efforts to try and change it, repeal it, modify it. Um, Everyone seems to sort of agree that it was a bad move, but no one agrees why. And so for the moment, we're sort of stuck sticking by it. Or yeah, maybe it's a good thing that we have it. I'm not a lawyer and I don't know the intricacies of this. My main worry would be that we end up somewhere similar with AI. So right now it seems like there's a fairly unified move to do something, um, which is a very good start. The details of that something think, can often be the undoing of this kind of momentum. And so, um, yeah, I'm excited to see more concrete details from Congress on what exactly that will look like uh, before you know, trying to make judgments of whether that's that's a promising direction. Can I stick with this for a moment just to keep with the internet analogy? So I think, you know, to build on Hadrian's point, another way the internet is a challenging uh, analogy that forces us into some hard questions around AI is it built itself organically and fits and starts with, sure, some governmental support at first, some adaptation to local conditions, but to a first approximation, it was a standard that you could plug into in effect. And so, you know, the internet is not really that governed and it's very open sourcey. It's very sort of adaptable. That's kind of the nature of it. For many folks, that is like a thrilling part of the story of human technological progress. And if you go back and read John Perry Barlow's Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace, it's got this sort of breathless quality of like, finally, we've arrived to a place that is not subject to the traditional clunky, backwards-looking rules of the nation state. And here, like, don't try to impose that. Like, we're pretty free here. The reality is much more complicated, right? At the end of the day, today's internet, the the less governed part of it brings with it some innovation and practicality and adaptation, but also the craziness of... uh, you know, foreign manipulation of, uh, you know, electoral processes and so on. It also highlights the extent to which even a relatively open internet gets readapted and reinterpreted at the national level by authoritarian regimes. So I think all that is to say hard questions about what governance regime can we, I, I don't like the word regime, what governance framework or approach might be doable in the AI context that will still allow for plenty of innovation and flexibility, but say like, you know what, there are some risks here. It's useful to know a little bit about who's doing what at the frontier so that if something goes badly wrong, we kind of know who's accountable for it. I want to turn to this question of, of how like concretely we regulate AI. But before I do that, I, I want to just talk briefly about one other aspect of the problem that I, I think maybe... Uh, 
a, a disanalogy with previous difficult challenges we faced. And that relates to the speed of technological progress. So one thing that I think often people don't appreciate about the development of AI, its contemporary advancement, is that it's not just developing exponentially in that, you know, it improves 3%, 4%, 5% every year, but it improves double exponentially across many metrics, which is to say the rate of improvement is itself improving. And so you're in a situation in which we've gone from zero to some unbelievable models in a speed that I think arguably at least we might not say was true about you know, nuclear weapons over the past 50 years or green technology or, or whatnot. Maybe we could say that about the internet, though. And so I'm just curious, you know, how, how important do you think or how difficult is the rapid technological advancement part going to be to any attempt, whether it's domestic or international, private, public, to get our, our hands around this, this issue? Yeah, so I think there is no doubt that in my mind, I've said this as, as much just earlier in our conversation, that the technology is probably going to continue improving and probably at a daunting pace, maybe even exponential that way. Although I notice a caveat that there are complexities. You know, the whole field of AI has had its ups and downs over 60 years plus, and it could be that the current paradigm of technology begins to peter out in some way or at some point, but I'm not so sure about that. So then the question becomes like, how do we deal with the blinding pace of technological progress? And I'd start from the premise that anybody who thinks as a matter of course, as a matter of just basic first principles, that because technology is moving very quickly, that means that the conventional social technology we have to deal with it, which is governance, law, conversation, you know, public discussions about what's good or not good. And therefore it just like that all needs to be swept aside. I'd be very skeptical of that. I feel like we have built a legal system, however imperfectly in countries like the U S that take the rule of law seriously to adapt, to change with us, to allow for change, to allow for innovation, but also to allow for some democracy and some, you know, accountability and some taking seriously of, of the downsides and the risks. And I feel like there are mechanisms, including common law liability or agencies that work really closely with industry to kind of develop the right kind of adaptation that do allow us some tools to adapt pretty quickly. But it's going to require making sure that folks inside the public sector have a deep knowledge and appreciation of the technology and the policy issues. And also, ideally, having the private sector understand that it's often to their benefit to not just resist some degree of public governance because that does help us get to a point where the larger public will support more technological innovation rather than creating some big backlash. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And that's something that EU is contending with right now as um, they built this EU AI Act, uh, their famous AI legislation, and they're in the final steps of negotiating it. And one of the, the big contentious issues right now is that Generative AI and uh, what they call foundation models, these very large models that places like OpenAI and Thropic are making, just don't fit into the framework they had originally thought of. Um, and so there's something to be said for creating governance regimes that are at least a little adaptable, that don't make too many assumptions about exactly what systems are, what they can do, how they're used, how they're commercially applied, and trying to be a little more reactive as these kinds of things change with time. Yeah. I think that's right. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you 
constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate delete me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So over the summer, Tino, you uh, co-authored a piece for Carnegie advocating for a registration requirement for large AI models. And I'm curious, because this is sort of a, a very concrete proposal, what main objective you think this will accomplish in the, let's say, AI safety discussion, and also how you respond to worries that, you know, a registration requirement is really just the first step down a path that leads to something like a licensing regime that Sam Altman, the OpenAI CEO, sort of famously advocated to Congress, uh, and that I think a lot of folks, and I, I will admit I'll put myself in this category, worry, which sort of lead to lock-in and sort of all sorts of anti-competitive issues. So the nice thing about the way you asked your question of what this will accomplish, it lets me give a little uh, plug for Carnegie because I can take your question as being about what do I think the publication of my piece will accomplish? What do I think the registration requirement would accomplish? And I'll answer both, right? I think, you know, a good example of what we try to do at Carnegie and Hadrian and colleagues do really well is to have this like really interesting space we occupy between being forward-looking, a little idealistic, but very practical, but looking ahead beyond where policymakers in the here and now can generally look, where having been there, like and many of our listeners know, like so many things are coming at you that thinking more than three weeks, let alone three months, let alone three years ahead, it's really difficult. So part of what you do in a piece like this is to highlight where we think the discussion will likely go or need to go and to shift the burden of proof to somebody who wants to say, no, I think that's a bad idea. As, and as you were saying, like if somebody wants to say, what, register frontier AI models, give the government information about who's doing large training runs, that sounds problematic. It means, you know, the government will be in the business of a lot of private sector companies. It means the government will then have the information it wants and needs to have to shut down whomever it doesn't like that's doing large training runs. We need to democratize access to AI. In fact, it should be pretty open source. And this is a step in the wrong direction. Somebody wants to make that case and argue for how that approach will improve human welfare, more power to them. Now, my own view, and I think my co-authors share this, is like there's a lot to be said for making sure government is choosy and careful and limited in what it does here. And we can talk about the EU AI Act and how maybe that might be a little different from what I expect will happen in the US and some other countries. But it's fair to say that if you want some innovation, some room for progress, you need government to have some restraint and to have it not over-regulate. That said, let's think a little bit about what is potentially a challenge for humanity. And to me, that includes the next generation of models beyond the GPT-3, Claude-2 models, the ones that might 
scale up by a factor of 10, the amount of compute they use for training, for example, that might be much, much better and actually have a gap in performance that goes beyond the gap between, say, GPT-3 or 3.5 and GPT-4 and might get closer and closer to outdoing almost any human on any number of tasks. Not, not all tasks. I'm not saying that that would happen, but it gets closer to that. Do we want to know who's working on that for purposes of just if something goes badly wrong, like who, who's responsible, who should be in the room, who should be in the conversation as the party responsible? I would say I'd love to have someone make the case that the answer is no. We don't want to know that, right? And ultimately, part of what is fueling that concern, going back to the, the core AI safety problems, before we talk about rogue AI systems or billions of AI having coalitions that they form together, let's just be very basic about it. A very sophisticated model in the hands of somebody who wants to do something that's not a good thing, whether it's writing malicious code or maybe starting to work on some biological weapon, could pose some risks. And if that's the case, and if those risks are big enough, then I think there's a case to be made that we just need to know some basic facts about who's doing these training runs. Okay, so let's turn to some thoughts that I know both of you have been having and some research you both have been engaged in more recently, and that's the international dimension of this problem. Um, you know, especially if you're thinking about the more extreme ends of AI risk, the problem obviously cuts across borders. You know, even if one country manages to control existential AI risk, that doesn't really help if some other country creates the great paperclip maximizer. Now, there are lots of different models of international cooperation when it comes to AI safety. And I'd like to start by asking you, Tino, what you think are the most important principles for an international AI safety organization at a very high level. What, what does it look like? What is it trying to accomplish? Thank you. I think a key principle should be that this technology is in some ways in its infancy. And if it can, as I do believe is possible, greatly benefit humanity, there ought to be plenty of room in the discussion of AI safety for a consideration of what the upside is of some serious, robust human access to the technology to deal with education, to deal with medical issues to help us better optimize how an energy grid works and to do any number of other things. That's one principle that feels important. A second one that feels equally important to me is to take full account of the range of different safety risks, to think not only about biological weapons or malicious code or disinformation or deepfakes, but to think a bit about the, and here I'll draw on the analogy to fossil fuels, like what happens at scale when you have lots and lots of systems, not one all-powerful system, but hundreds of millions, potentially or millions or even billions eventually, of sophisticated semi-autonomous models interacting with each other, behaving in, in odd and quirky ways. The science behind that is going to have to get into a little bit, not only climate modeling, but also like what we've learned about the way the hyper automation of certain kinds of financial trades. I mean, think like, uh, you know, very rapid uh, trading uh, on platforms that, that can outdo each other at the microsecond level, create particular market dynamics. And that analogy applied to lots of AI systems interacting with each other. That feels like the second principle is take account of the full range of safety risks. The third principle should be, if you want any international governance effort to fail, particularly at a moment where the world's geopolitical realities are shifting and the developing world is becoming more important. But so if you want it to fail, 
focus on the G7 uh, or just on a subset of the G7, even the more powerful and richest countries to the exclusion of the rest. And there's a real risk with that. I'm not saying that the G7 can't come up with some really interesting and compelling ideas. I'm watching the Hiroshima process with interest as that plays out in Japan under the auspices of the G7. And I feel increasingly stuff that happens in the G7 can connect to the G20, to stuff that happens in Africa, in South Asia. But I do think that third principle has to be pull in lots of different countries so that you hear different voices and have them all be part of the conversation and we can have a common understanding of what AI safety really means and what to do about it. You know, just as we can look at previous challenges and how we've dealt with them, like say climate change or nuclear energy, we can also look at previous and existing institutions for how we've dealt with them. Um, and you know, in work that, that you know, you're sort of doing right now, you point out and you, you, you analyze sort of three current, very interesting and very important international regulatory institutions, or at least international coordinating institutions. Um, and so you know, there's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, which functions largely as a kind of synthesizer of information about climate change. There's the International Atomic Energy Agency, um, which is a bit of a sort of regulator, regulator and watchdog, especially on issues of nuclear proliferation. And then, of course, there's CERN, the European Organization for Nuclear Research, which actually does fundamental research in you know, high-energy particle physics. And I'm curious, you know, as you sort of thought of these three models as maybe sort of ideal types of different ways that you could think about having an AI safety organization, what, what lessons have you taken away from that? You know, have, have these are you, have these organizations done well? Have they done poorly? Do you think there's a particular model that fits better for the issue of AI safety? Yeah, there's a model that fits better. And I think for the moment, it's the IPCC analog, but I'll get there by noting a couple things. One thing you have to appreciate is that every one of these organizations has been a, a benefit to humanity, to my mind. It's really moved things forward in important and significant ways. But you know, my Carnegie colleagues and I try to be practical. And at the end of the day, you got to start from the premise that the world has lots of different countries. And that's for a reason. There's got to be room in the way we organize the world for folks in Japan and South Korea and Mongolia and Mexico and Turkey and China and France and the U.S. to be different from each other and govern somewhat differently. There's no like one world government we're headed to. That reality means you got to take seriously what special conditions contributed to the relative contributions of these different kinds of organizations. And, you know, if you look at the International Atomic Energy Agency, it's done some good work in making sure nuclear proliferation risk is somewhat manageable and also sharing best practices and inspecting. Most recently, it's been active in Ukraine, trying to make sure that as uh, particular pieces of nuclear infrastructure come under attack, that we minimize those safety risks. But all of that began from a seed that reflected a an alignment of interests at one point between the then Soviet Union and the United States. Neither country had a lot of interest in having nuclear technology greatly proliferate. So they wanted to build, support, diplomatically, you know, catalyze an organization that could help on that score. Now, if I think about CERN, there, there's a commonality that the European countries had in coming together, and eventually they had other partners too, and actually making sure that Europe was absolutely at the forefront of some of the most advanced physics experimentation that the planet could have. And that incentive for collaboration, you can't always find across different countries. And, you know, by consequence, 
the ability of CERN to actually be a genuine practitioner of the of advancing the research, the research enterprise was different. Um, that degree of collaboration that it made possible, but that was also pre-baked a little bit into some alignment of interest among European countries. IPCC is a much more cross-compatible model that reflects the reality that if the world's going to act on climate risk and take it seriously, then a lot of validation has to happen. What is the state of knowledge? What do we know? What has changed? What do we know now that we didn't know a year and a half ago? You know, what's responsible for what you're seeing around the world? What do we not know? What's the uncertainty? And how do we create a sense among many, many different kinds of countries that that actually can be agreed upon. So I see real promise in creating an organization like that, a network like that to advance the discussion on AI safety that could as easily accommodate the United States and Japan, the UK, China, as it could Indonesia, South Africa, India, and Mexico. But then the goal would be for that kind of knowledge to then facilitate greater action at the national level and maybe even the regional level and eventually the global level to move things forward. And, and specifically, if we had an IPCC for AI, right, an international panel on AI safety, let's say, structurally speaking, you know, would you design it any differently than the current IPCC? Obviously, there'd be a lot of details that'd be different. But are there sort of things that you think the IPCC does not do well because of its structure that you would explicitly deviate from in your kind of AI version of it? It's a good question. And in a way, what's behind it is, I mean, we, you know, some of the discussions that I've been having highlight this point, like, okay, do you point to the IPCC as a good example of a success or a failure? Because after all, the world is not exactly on track to succeed in keeping uh, climate change uh, to the you know, minimum that we can. And certainly like there's tons of unanswered questions around where funding has kind of come from for huge energy transitions that have big price tags in the developing world. And, you know, the developed world is not keen to limit some of its own emissions to the degree that might be technologically and, and policy-wise possible. So all that is true. I think it's fair to say in an ideal world, there would be probably a little bit more institutional texture than the IPCC has to a kind of secretariat that can act fairly quickly and move knowledge forward and validate it in less than a cycle that takes kind of a yearly process. Over time, the IPCC itself has improved on that score, but I think we could do even better. And uh, I think that also highlights that the IPCC has had a relationship to industry that might be different from what one would hope for with the, the AI analog, which is to say a lot of the knowledge at the very, very cutting edge lives in, in private sector entities right now. And on the one hand, you don't want those entities to sort of capture a process that has to be quite a bit independent and led by scientists and by technical experts and policy folks. But you also want the degree of closeness and ideally some sensible collaboration to leverage things like the Frontier Model Forum that's been announced by some of the leading private sector players. So I see some opportunities for innovation around that. Yeah, and I would maybe just add, I think something that IPCC is sometimes criticized for, which I actually think is more of a benefit than, than something holding its back, is that it is somewhat of a political institution. The reports are, in theory, um, accepted by consensus. And often people say that this results in reports that sometimes underplay the effects of climate change. Um, but I think really one of the key parts of the IPCC is that it creates this sort of body of very legitimate research. And maybe that comes to some costs, that comes with some costs in terms of what the research can say, the kind of political bargains that have to be made. 
but I think that that's a key part of what's happening is that you adopt some kind of report by consensus and it makes it much easier to then point to it in other policy decisions uh, as something, as a sort of secure body of knowledge that everyone can can then build on. Uh, and without that, without the common appreciation of what the risk is, what the current state of play is, it's incredibly difficult to, to come to any meaningful policy decisions. So in our last few minutes, I want to do like a bit of a lightning round um, on international issues. And, and the first question I want to ask is to go back to the EU AI Act, um, which we've mentioned a couple of times. And is, at least to my knowledge, the first and really only major regulatory effort that we've seen, even approaching the sort of scale and scope of what governments would need to get their arms around AI. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on what it's doing right, what it's doing wrong, and, and, and you know, what you think the potential for success is. And, and I think I'm going to start with uh, uh, Hadrian, because you, you know, pointed out some interesting points about how foundation models, which are, of course, so important, don't even fit in into this structure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I would note that some people would get angry calling the AI Act the first piece of AI legislation. Some would argue all legislation is AI legislation that can all be reapplied and so on. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely sort of the biggest behemoth in this space trying to cover a lot of this space. Maybe one first thing I would say is that while the AI Act has been advertised in some ways as you know the AI Act, we're going to cover all AI in the EU, this is the Act. The reality is obviously much more complicated. What the AI Act is, is product safety legislation in the EU, which is some of their bread and butter. It's about making sure that all the EU has harmonized requirements for certain types of products um, and that they support a certain level of safety and respect of fundamental rights. Uh, and so that's the, the structure we're going in with. And as a result, it's inherently not going to deal with issues like liability or copyrights. It might slightly touch on them and affect them, but it's not the be-all, end-all of AI laws and AI legislation in the EU. And this is also just a reflection of the, what the EU is as a body. It's a supranational organization. It doesn't have all the powers a normal, uh, a normal country would have. That being said, I think there is a lot to learn from the AI Act. Something that tends to be overplayed, again, when it's advertised this very horizontal legislation is that it does put a lot of emphasis on trying to make this common set of requirements over a lot of different industries, but then allowing some leeway for customizable standards and expectations within those industries. This is sort of a blessing and a curse. I think it gives it a lot more flexibility um, in the implementation phase, but that makes the implementation phase all the more important. And so I think the next few years are going to be really key to see now that the EU has created this framework, are they really going to be able to fill it in, uh, create the kind of legal certainty that they're hoping for? I think a lot of the threading of the needle still still has to be done once the act is passed. I agree entirely. I would simply add that, that this is a good example of where the devil's kind of in the details, because in principle, if you look at the high-level mechanics of the proposed EU AI Act, it's not unreasonable to divide AI systems into risk tiers uh, it's not unreasonable to point out that some have specialized transparency requirements. It's not unreasonable to think that the highest risk AI applications or systems deserve higher level auditing and attention and requirements. But, you know, the question of exactly how you define certain things, what you put in what bucket, how you enforce and implement this, that's where the real action is going to be. And I think uh, it, it'll be tricky because I, I don't know that uh, every jurisdiction around the world will be quite as comfortable as the EU in taking the particular approach that has been taken there. That's that's kind of very comprehensive. It's not even just about, let's say, 
foundation models or large language models generally, but about like something that's supposed to unify a regulatory approach that ranges from like the protein folding stuff that DeepMind is doing with heavy, heavy reinforcement learning to the large language models, to machine learning algorithms that decide on loan applications. Like that's a lot of territory. And uh, I'm not one that inherently feels like you you can't come up with a regulatory scheme for fast changing technology, but it does make me worry a bit. And this is part of Hadrian's point, I think, whether it's sort of more facing towards the version of AI that was proliferating more, say, three years ago than what we're having to deal with right now. So that points me a little bit in the direction of thinking, well, you know, some thin requirements around registration and red teaming, plus the liability regime we have in the U.S. is a, a somewhat different paradigm, but that's not without some value and still some accountability that it can force. And it gets at this, I think, very interesting eternal debate in a lot of regulation, which is the AI Act originally was really based around regulating things by application at the time at which they're put on the market or actually used, um, which in theory made a lot of sense until you had things like foundation models that have no specific purpose. It's hard to categorize them. Then whoever's deploying them takes on all of the risks and all of the obligations. That was seen as too much. And so I think there's going to be a similar question that's going to arise and is rising in the US, which is, are we going to regulate these systems only at the point of application, um, maybe using all the existing agencies we already have, which cover a lot of problem areas? Or are there going to have to be some kind of more centralized requirements, perhaps for foundation models, perhaps for some other bucket that we're going to have to craft more carefully, that they, they should uphold, even if it's not always about what they're actually doing with the models, but just about the the models themselves should uphold certain values or be built in certain ways. Um, and I think that there's a lot to learn from the debate that's happened in the EU and the shift that's happened in the EU for what we should be doing here in the US. To close out our conversation, I want to talk about the one country that we haven't actually talked about yet, but that looms very large in any discussion of AI, and that is China. And in particular, how the US-China rivalry will play out in this space. It's become something of a truism that in DC, the only way to get bipartisan support is to frame something as a anti-China or a China competition issue. And given China's investment and advances in AI, um, this would seem to cut against the sort of cooperation that we might need on this issue. You know, Tino, you, you wrote a, a fabulous piece in foreign policy uh, about how the winner in the US-China AI race is AI itself. And so you know, I'd love for uh, us to finish off by just talking about what you meant by that and, and how you think the US-China um, relationship can help or hinder AI safety efforts. Thank you. Of course, the U.S. has to be cautious about China. And of course, there's a degree of technological competition that is not surprising at all, maybe even unavoidable. We'll see. Uh, but I would say two things. I would say, number one, part of the point that my co-author and I were trying to make in the foreign policy piece is that if you step back and see the full ecosystem of AI development that is playing out right now, much of it in the private sector, some of it at the cutting edge of the sort of knowledge production piece still is connected in some way to university researchers, but so much of the actions in the private sector and the, the full range of interesting policy questions, which, some of which require a lighter touch, a little bit of restraint, some of which might require a little bit more engagement from the public sector. All those nuances and questions can be pushed aside if you think too much that the paradigmatic fundamental lens to think about AI and humanity is a competition between China and the US. That obscures like so many policy trade-offs, questions, 
maybe even a few places where the fundamental nature of the dilemma is a little similar in China or the U.S. or any country, like about how you engage the general public in making decisions about uh, frontier technology, how you balance innovation and risk, and so on. The second point, which uh, you know, sort of follows a little bit from the first, is that we ought not to forget that there are some common interests that even despite all these distinctions China and the U.S. may have in AI safety, for example, we got to make sure that as we do these U.K. summits and these other things, that we don't end up creating a, a way of thinking about the subject that might uh, heighten tensions or give China maybe uh, a reason to feel like uh, it is having a, a large chunk of the world sort of align against it in a certain way, when in fact a big chunk of this discussion, not all of it, but a big chunk of it, can really sound more in the key of some common interests that multiple countries have to assure the well-being of humanity. Yeah, and I would maybe just add to that, there's some great work going on here at Carnegie on this. Matt Sheehan is incredible on a lot of these China issues. And I think the, the way I see a lot of this, based on his own research, is that the calculus is slowly changing. Um, well, one thing that seems to be coming through is that China is willing to regulate on AI and has been regulating on AI and maybe doesn't shy away as much as many of us in the U.S. might have assumed from, um, from curtailing this kind of technology. Of course, that's a, you know, there's a whole bag of worms, to, you know, that's civil uses, and there's a lot of complexity there. But that maybe suggests that a, a partnership is possible. And on top of that, the lens of these uh, AI safety risks, quote unquote, I think gives a lot more primacy to international cooperation and changes this calculus from something where pure competition would win. And the goal is just to, you know, US be number one to something where we have to have a discussion. And so the way I've heard the debate play out has often been more nuanced than maybe uh, before this conversation about AI safety came to the fore. I think it's a good place to wrap up our conversation. Tino Cuellar, Hadrian Fouget, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Glad to be here and good questions. Yeah, thank you so much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osmond of Go Rodeo. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.